Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and what you're about to hear is another panel that I recorded at the Steampunk World's Fair, which is held in New Jersey. And the panel was one of the most interesting ones I have ever sat through with all of my years of convention traveling. This was about Victorian archaeology. And on the panel was Dr. Brad Hayford, who is an archaeologist now, a field technician in archaeology named Lex, and author Gail Carriger, who is not only a steampunk author, but is also an archaeologist. So I thought that was fascinating that she's got this incredible background for writing adventure stories. So it's awesome. And you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. Steam World's Fair is the Twitter for Steampunk World's Fair. And if possible, please go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked and support the show financially. And if you can't support the show, you can share the Patreon links. If you go over there, you don't have to be a registered user just to share the links. That's really appreciated. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy this panel. Totally loud since we're not the mic, but I, I can usually carry fairly well. Um, we're going to maybe put a few images up here, maybe talk about, well, we'll tell you some of what archaeology happened in the, the Victorian era, and then maybe we'll discuss what it would be like in a steampunk world. I ask for questions from all of you guys, creative input, things like this, sound pretty good. Uh, but we would start with uh, introducing ourselves. You want to go first? I mean, everybody can probably know sure. you, but... Sure. <laughs> <laughs> This is my cell phone. It's on mute. I'd appreciate it if you all put yours on mute. Uh, the rule of the game is if you don't and it rings, I get to answer the call and ask about your sex life. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was almost done with my PhD and I got grandfathered back and to teach, so technically I became faculty. My specialty is ceramic analysis, which means I'm a materials expert, not an area expert. And then my specific focus is technological transitions in kilns from open firings to closed firings to closed firings. So I went all over the world to different places. People would call me in when there was a question on transitions. So I've been to England for Romano British and medieval. I've in Italy for Etruscan, and I finished up in Peru, and I did some Syrian stuff as well. Uh, so yeah, that's my creds. Oh, a couple of master's degrees. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lex. I'm an archaeologist, or an archaeological field technician, technically, and have been for over five years. I specialize in digging holes really fast and well, and identifying <laughs> material culture, and, uh, you know, delineating sexiness <laughs> things. Um, yeah, I don't dig all over the world. I like to go on adventures, though. Um, and, yeah, I'll be telling you about how sweaty and filthy and wonderful archaeology is. <laughs> all right, I'm Brad Hafford. Um, officially, when I write uh, my scholarly articles, etc., it's William B. I go by my middle name in my sort of fiction world, because I do write steampunk altered history and things like this. And then when I write other things, I do it under my first name. In a way, it keeps in my head the two worlds a little bit separate, but they merge sometimes. You know, I like to imagine when I'm excavating what would this potentially be like, but I can't keep that into my analysis. I can only put that into my fiction. So um, I am at the University of Pennsylvania 
It's where I got my PhD a long time ago in 2001, and I stayed because we have a great museum. And lately I have been looking into and digitizing all of the records from the excavations of one of the first cities in the world, the ancient city of Ur in southern Iraq. Now, Pan and the British Museum jointly excavated it from 1922 to 1934. So, I've been reading a whole lot of the letters from the field and the field notes and all of this stuff and getting very interested in in the people and their interaction and their conflicts and all of that. So not just the ancient stuff, but also the not so ancient, but bordering on Victorian. We're into well, Georgian era, really, but um, I thought we could talk some about that. We don't really have an agenda. We're gonna <laughs> talk about anything you might wanna hear about. And um, if we get this working, I can show a few slides and tell you about, um, I am an area specialist pretty much. I'm a Near Eastern archeologist, so I, I work in Iraq currently. I've worked in Syria up until the Civil War, so put about 15 years there. I've worked in Greece and Egypt, so Eastern Mediterranean is my world. Syria, or just north of Raqqa, which is now Sorry, this is like how small the archaeology world is. <laughs> my first master, MS degree was on Raqqa out. Rocket has this awesome industrial complex. It's Aleppo, which unfortunately has now been bombed. And um, the site in Rocket was already a salvage site because of urban sprawl. But um, <laughs> so uh, it's an amazing Islamic um, industrial complex where they produced. Uh, a lot of pottery that you may or may not be familiar with, including the turquoise stuff from the Islamic the Islamic era, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and also the, they're a very interesting complex because they have a glaze and metalworking alongside ceramic work, and so you see interesting um, concurrent transitions between like the colors and glazes and the, the glass work that's going on because it's very similar technology, and so you can see artisans sharing ideas. The other interesting thing about Raqqa, while well, he's getting set up, is that it is a POW camp as well. And it seems pretty clear that, because they're at war with the Byzantine Empire, it seems pretty clear that they're using, at a certain point in their history, Greek prisoners of war to produce pottery for an Islamic market that's imitating Chinese stuff. So, <laughs> one of the things I love to tell people about archaeology is that it's a lot, there's a lot more sharing of ideas across cultures than early archaeologists initially thought. So. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, um, excavators even, H.R. Hall, for instance, when he first started working at Ur, 1918 or so, he was using Turkish prisoner war as his excavators. Basically, he would tell them to dig, because um, it was right at the end of World War I. So, yeah, pretty much. The, the Romans would conscript artisans. So they take, um, and they would take, like, you could get conscripted cons into the army because you have a maker in particular. They love the brick makers. Because they just take them along with them and be like, okay, the, the army comes in and then the artisan team comes in and is like, right, guys, let's get some real work done. <laughs> Do you want to see some of the Near East, or I mean, what, I came in last minute, so whatever y'all want to do, just here to feel the stories about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of what inspires a lot of my fiction is just the concepts that I'm finding. Either the ancient artwork, and I can think, what would that be like if it turned into a metal automaton or something, you know, powered by steam? 
I want to know what would the Ottoman steampunk look like. I think there is a little bit written, but not as much as I'd love to see. So um, maybe they would use ancient Mesopotamian imagery in some of their, uh, you know, the Sultan's concept of making airships, etc. There's a book called The Gates of Hercules, I think it is. Um, by David Constantine, which hypothesizes steampunk Alexander the Great. So what would happen if he had access to sort of steam technology and stuff? And that's a very, very fun thought experiment. I, uh, yeah. I urge you to check it out. It's not a very well-known book, but it's really interesting, especially from, he really did his research. The archaeological perspective is fascinating. Yeah, and one of the first steam engines was actually invented in the Hellenistic period. Precisely why he uh, hypothesized that they yeah. turned it into war engines. What would Hellenistic steampunk would be really great. <laughs> and we can talk more on the uh, literature panel, too, about that, maybe, about how we yeah. increase the broaden steampunk. Yeah, what I guess. What is that title again? I think it is called The Gates of Heracles, but okay. um, David Constantine is the name of the author. And if you sort of did David Constantine, Alexander the Great, am I right? Do you know it? Um, yeah, correct it's Okay. Um, I just have a quick question. With uh, the steampunk, uh, like archaeology, the archaeologists themselves, would it be more of a, I was thinking, would it be more of like the Victorian archaeology, where it's more about collecting instead of preserving kind of mindset, instead of like preserving uh, like uh, a chunk of wall, they would collect it and put it in their like, you know, Take it parlor away. or something. <laughs> no context. That's, <laughs> that's generally the way it happened. Now, when we write a steampunk world, maybe they are more concerned. I don't know. They we, should we be. Stick? <laughs> <laughs> there was um, the Egyptian Society, what's it called? Oh, curses. Anyway, um, Amelia B. Edwards, who was one of the early explorers, of, of one of the first females to travel to Egypt, she went back and wrote these books about Egypt that actually sparked off additional collection, collecting and then got upset about it um, and started the first concept of conservation during this time period. Yeah. So it is, it is um, possible that you could have people who are interested in preservation, um, but you'd have a struggle, I think, to get out of the basic Victorian mindset of you know, protecting the natives from themselves. <laughs> including the native artifacts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think what drove most of that in the 19th century was filling museums, the world museums in the West. You know, they wanted to find this stuff and bring it back. And some of the stuff they brought back is enormous. And the technical needs to try and, they would cut these gigantic stone reliefs into pieces so that they would be camel loads. Then they would move them down and ship them and then reassemble them in the museums. Even the one that we have at Penn, you can still see where they sawed them into three pieces. And the, the British dropped an obelisk in the middle of the Mediterranean at one point uh, because the French had gone and got an obelisk, which is in Paris somewhere. And, uh, and so the British were like, we want an obelisk. <laughs> Picked up this obelisk, the, the ship sank, and so there's an obelisk at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Even some of the Elgin marbles actually sank at one point, and this inspired, they wanted to get them back, so they inspired some of the earliest underwater stuff with these hoses and the giant you know, sponge diver things. They went down and picked up some of these things. That'd be so, a fun uh, steampunk idea. It would be sort of Captain Nemo uh, archaeology. Yeah, I'd love to see that. <laughs> uh, do you have more questions? We can run with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering, building off of that, how much of there is a movement now to bring 
some of that stuff back or repatriation. Repatriation yes. is a very serious issue. It's a touchy subject. <laughs> <laughs> Mixed feelings uh, in Rome right now. Uh, so that you know they they got a bunch of bunch of Egyptian obelisks and then they you know put crosses on them because they're just large phallic symbols and put a cross on it until better. <laughs> Egypt is like, hey, so can a you know, this is obviously from us. Like, we know that you guys took this. It's like, no, we put a cross on it. It's not the same thing anymore. It's ours now. It's a little, a little touchy. There's um, so there's some, there's strict regulations in different parts of the world. Um, the American archaeologists operate under NACRA, which is very heavy and quite restrictive, and it makes you terrified if you're excavating. I did the book corner. Yeah, stay away from the goddamn burial. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Whereas, like in direct counter to that, down in uh, where I was last in Peru, uh, there's burials everywhere, and nobody really cares about the burials. Um, you know, there are children like coming out of the wall. It's fascinating. Um, but God forbid you get a whole pot because then you have to call in the goddamn army because then you'll have looters and there'll be this whole problem. So um, it's very different in different parts of the world. Repatriation is touchy because, um, you know, places like the British Museum um, and particularly the uh, Scottish one, the medical museum in Scotland, in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Museum. Um, have refused repatriation. So uh, countries have requested to have artifacts or bodies or of their ancestors returned that they refused. Um, but on the flip side, uh, many of the countries that have asked for repatriation have then had, say, civil wars, and their their major statues bombed or sites destroyed. And so there's a the love of artifacts sort of makes it very difficult to uh, not realize that as negative as it is to hold these things, they're still there because of that thievery. So, in most uh, cases in the um, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, we're operating under a system they called partage, which was some of the artifacts stay in country and the rest go to the excavators. So at Hoor, for example, 50% were supposed to remain in Iraq, which was being created at the time. It was just after World War I. And the other half got split between Philadelphia and London. Then, around 1934, they wrote a new law in Iraq that said no artifacts can go out, and that kind of ended the excavation because much of the goal at the time was to get artifacts. By 1970, UNESCO passed a law that was about the trade in artifacts, and our museum signed on right away. In fact, we had written our own just prior to it, which said we won't collect anymore, basically. But what we have now, we can keep to display to the people who can't necessarily get to those countries. If everything from the past in Iraq stayed in Iraq, how many people would see it? This is the reasoning anyway for world museums. Whereas maybe they can get to New York or something because they're near there, maybe they're less likely to go see it elsewhere. From the Iraqi perspective though, if they have all the artifacts, they get more tourism, they, they can get more money, they can maybe be proud of their heritage, etc. So there's arguments both sides. I, I tend to believe in world museums, but I, I hope that doesn't, you know. I know. <laughs> it's really a big debate, especially in the U.S. because NACDA is so strict here. So we don't talk about it. For very good reason. Very good reason. Uh, there were definitely days in our period of time of interest where, you know, yeah. you'd go out with your family, there'd be you know, an Indian mound, just kind of like dig in there, have some lunch, look at bodies, take yeah. whatever you found. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. a bad scene. The mummy unwrapping, the Victoria, oh, yeah, Victoria. Of course. Oh, yeah. the mummy, mummy unwrapping pop. We saw it. The, the mummy does. There's the 
fertilized, there are huge tracts of Suffolk that are fertilized with uh, cat mummies in particular, because there were so many cat mummies, they did ship them back and then they'd be like, oh, excellent fertilizer. <laughs> Until the rest of the ground. I heard they even use some mummies just to throw in as fuel for train engines sometimes. I don't know if that's completely true, but I've heard no, no, it. No, I hear that uh, the gentleman, uh, the slideshow gentleman, that, you know, would talk about trying to find treasure and, oh, the air was thick with mummy dust because I just trampled, you know, like 50 of them to get to the stuff. Oh, oh so it. It's heartbreaking. But in some of these sites, you really can see bones just washing out everywhere. Yeah. There's yeah. Uh, somehow there needs to be. Uh, well, then there's the fish. like so, what was the, there's the um, the dam in, in in Egypt, right? Or like if you visit the Cairo Museum, it's like the single biggest argument against repatriation. Frankly, is the he is the worst curated, worst preserved museum on the planet. So like. And yet they've got amazing things. You just you don't know what you're looking at. And you don't know how long it's going to be there. <laughs> Isn't Tutankhamun not allowed to tour anymore? Because he did the world tours. Isn't he back? Somebody <laughs> like knocked off his head. <laughs> right? yeah. 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 But some things have also happened in Western museums. There are things that have gone missing or been destroyed. Maybe not quite the level that it has happened in some other places, but you know we're not perfect either. So you know if we say, oh, you can't care for your own stuff. So if we say that was brought back here, we have all the records, we've got the permit. In fact, we've got permit number 001 from the Iraqi government, first one ever issued, because it was a new country. But it technically says it was legal. But if we can show that anything was looted or there was agreed it would go back, we have to send those back. Yeah. The other thing is archaeologists, by and large, aren't. Well, we should not be and mostly are not interested in something that's provenance can't be traced. It's useless. Yeah. doesn't tell us anything. Doesn't matter how valuable it is. Frankly, it's not valuable to research, and therefore we should not have any interest in it. There's no data. Uh, so I want questions, please, not comments. I want to ask you uh, about your writings and how you use archaeology, right? I, I, I'm familiar with it, but not this gentleman. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> you know, for for quite a while, I mainly write short stories, um, and for the first ones, I kind of avoided archaeology because I didn't want to confuse the worlds in a way, you know? But more and more, I'm coming into using at least some of the information. It's not usually about archaeologists, but it might be about uh, the time period and the people. So I wrote one about the Alaska Gold Rush, which I've gone steampunk with, and there's a kind of... Uh, What's the title? Uh, <laughs> oh, look, I can't remember my own title. No. <laughs> It will come to me. <laughs> um, it's in this anthology, anyway, Steampunk versus Aliens, basically. Oh. So uh, uh, I did 
they're going to give a copy of that as a prize somewhere. I gave them a copy to the people here. But anyway. Um, oh, that's okay. We like the anthology. It's in the, yeah, you can find it in the anthology, and then my name would be in there, because you wouldn't find it under the story title anyway. Clockwork <laughs> Universe, Steampunk versus Aliens is that one. Um, but a lot of the research that I've done, reading the old letters and everything, gives me a feel for the people of the period and what they might be looking for. And in that case, they're after gold. So it's kind of like the rush to try and find artifacts, but I, I wanted to separate myself a little. Now I'm doing more and more where I might I might actually bring archaeology into stores. Do you do that, Dan? I mean, do you use um, well, I tend to, you'll, you'll notice one of the things I tend to do is take my characters to places I've been because I excavated there, and that I, sometimes they'll visit a, an excavation, so the excavation in Blameless is like an amalgam of the excavation I was on and a, and a, a different one. That's, in a, a, that's a Northern Italian Etruscan site. Um, and so, I, but mostly that's because I feel like traveling to a place gives you like the smell and the light and the feel of just walking, the sensation of what the, the earth, the color of the earth, things like that, which I, I just want to be more accurate about, and it is really hard to, to find that information out. Mostly I use the skill sets in research that I learned as an archaeologist. Um, I'm not against it, but the, you'll note there is no archaeology character, because it really, went to Egypt. Uh, yeah, but they're pretty vile. Like, <laughs> the archaeologists from the time period are pretty awful, lavish. Yeah, so I kind of just. There's a great book called by. Who's it by? Uh, the Rape of the Nile. Who's it by? Because uh, of the Nile. Anyway, it's called The Rape of the Nile. I can't imagine there's any other book named that. Um, which, if you read, you start to get an eye for these things if you do a lot of research. You read a book and you're like, this started out as someone's PhD thesis. <laughs> Italian excavator who's just this great Berlagoni or something who's this insane character who just like brutalized the that's my uh, best guy is he? Yeah, no, yeah. he's the guy that was he's just, in fucking bonkers and totally fascinating and most of the book is him and then it's like bracketed by some other evil doings in Egypt by archaeologists but you can tell he was writing his thesis on that guy but he would be a wonderful evil villain that's the other problem is that if you know too much about a topic, sometimes your tendency is to go into that minutia that you would in your research, and maybe you're going to be making the book kind of boring. Yeah. It's going on and on about one or two things, and you need narrative and story. You, you know? need to so leave it out most of the time. Three pages about the street your walls were. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any, oh, the, the man with the green face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so a lot of what steampunk is is taking something uh, modern and, and going back and using a, using a steam-based technology to reproduce it. What do you think? Each of you think would be the, the what is your favorite archaeological tool, and how would you steampunk it? Oh. Natives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real about it. Like, let's talk about the era. Let's talk about the people who were the actual archaeologists. Did very little work. It's it true. was all hired help. Um, oh, and it was it's so bad. bad. They get great help. That's why I'm 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 the help. <laughs> so we, call, we call them shovel jockeys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, for me, it's just a trowel, but you don't really steampunk a trowel unless you make one that spins. 
do, uh, I mean, it depends. You can go clock punk quite easily. So you could get something in um, early India, maybe? Or, or certainly China, Japan, um, Korea, places like that. I mean. One of the things that I was saying would inspire me were often these things, whereas this guy, this uh, Lamassu, is a really interesting figure from Assyrian time periods, right, Neo-Assyrian. And they were uh, protective, they were at gates, you know, and unfortunately many of these are being destroyed right now by the Islamic State. But to me they're fascinating, and even though I might not have the Neo-Assyrians running them, although that might be interesting, I might have the Ottomans recreating these things as big tanks or something, and can you imagine it in metal? It's really bizarre. Uh, the gentleman with the bracelet? Yes, uh, so to, to back up the steam train a little bit, what brought each of you to the steampunk world?
I do lots of clothing descriptions and things like that, but hats and, you know, because uh, that's kind of just a natural to me, I think, to explain the world through artifacts, essentially. And I think it's natural to a lot of punkers. <laughs> yeah, and I'm learning whenever I'm doing this research, too, about a time period I didn't know. Some of the true stuff that I find is fascinating, you know? Some of these people hated each other, and, you know, they would... Uh, boycott one excavator over another, you know, it's really strange, and then you find that, then you start thinking almost murder mystery, you know, what if one of the bodies I just dug was really a guy from 150 years ago that they didn't like, and they shoved him <laughs> 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 Murder mystery would be fun that way, I think, you know. I'm, I'm dying to write a mystery book that you're like, yeah. exactly, I, 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 I would love to write a mystery novel where there's a body in a kiln, and there's uh, an investigator in the past, probably medieval England, but there's an investigator in the past investigating the murder, and then an archaeologist in the present Ooh. investigating the murder, and they both come to separate conclusions about who done it, and I was like, oh, that'd be such a good book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but even political conflict, like you can see in this cartoon from Punch, you know, they, this is Henry Layard, who was working in northern Iraq uh, in the 19th century, and you can see that he's digging out this, and yet all this other, you know, there's corruption in the government, and they're representing all the money that they're spending to bring these kinds of things into the museum. You know, Thesis. 
And I'm particularly interested in voluntary abandonment, which is when a culture takes a technology that, or has a technology that you think would make their lives easier, or the logic dictates that you would keep this technology and they in fact ignore it. The best example of this is um, the, the Brits were occupied by the Romans for about 200 years, which the British hate, <laughs> would like to forget. Um, uh, but one of the things they did is kept their roads and certain aspects of their hygiene, but uh, they rejected their pottery, at least in the mid to northern sections of England. Um, and so they had the potter's wheel, which was introduced by the Romans, and uh, they decided not to use it anymore and went back to 200-year-old technology, which had not been used in the 200-year interim. Um, and started make hand building these incredibly ugly drying pots, <laughs> which make no sense. They're not. They're not any explanation you can come up with. Believe me, they're not better for cooking. They're they're not better looking. They're not more useful. They're more fragile. They don't keep. They're just dumb. They're a dumb <laughs> pot. The only logical explanation is that they were being British about it. We'll invent the wheel in our own time. <laughs> Thank you very much. And they did, but... Uh, yes. Persistent arm with the hairband around it. Um, <laughs> in the spirit of steampunk, whimsy, and fantasy, if you could solve any historical mystery, what would it be? And Ooh. if you could time travel, would you want to? That's the hardest question. We're all really white, is. so it's really not that difficult, but uh, we're women, we're women so women. that would be kind of <laughs> Do I get the language when I time travel? Sorry. It's always my question. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, it depends on if I get stuck there. I <laughs> can't come back again. Yeah, I think I probably would. I'd be really curious, but then... Um, Part of the thing that draws me into archaeology is that many people can't tell me I'm wrong. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've been dead a long time. No, they can't well. speak up. No, I, I know there's lots of arguments in our field, but um, you can kind of come up with a theory that looks like it fits it. And I imagine that we would go back and find out that we're completely wrong in many Most of the times. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little scary, but yeah, I probably want to know. But what time? Gosh, uh, I don't know that I'd want to live in any of them because medicine was not good. And, it's always medicine. I'd go back and hang out with the Gnostics in the Middle East and uh, look at the transition of the Merkaba mysticism into what is the Kabbalah today. But I'd have to pretend to be a dude because they don't talk to women about that sort of thing at that period of time. Uh, so that's what I would do. Medieval occultism all the way. I'd go back to Etruscan stuff, I think, because we know so little about it. I, although I'm very curious with the Wari as well, but there are wild, crazy theories about the Etruscans being uh, matriarchal and things like that, so I'd be very interested in seeing how they treat women. I don't think they were, but... Um, as to the puzzle, most of the things I think I would see solved if we cut our linguistic, like linear A or, or the Etruscan language or the Mayan language, writ written languages that we don't really know um, completely what they're saying, I'd like to see some of those. Yeah, one of my biggest questions in research is the formation of cities. Why did we start living in cities? But you can't really go back to a time and say, oh, a city's being built. I, you know, yeah, it, that's it, where I'm It's <laughs> over a long period, so how can you really, you know, uh, maybe if you could see a time lapse, you know, if you could hang out in time and watch it move faster. And, oh, okay, now I see what's happening. But <laughs> it's a hard one to solve. That's kind of why I study it. Um, yeah, the Lady in Blue. What's the most unique or strange um, discovery through your field work or through your research? 
I can answer this one. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a ready answer for this. Because it makes, it's so like, it's so completely an archeological answer to you. So we found this pot. <laughs> That's your answer. Um, the reason I, was, I went to Peru is that uh, the site I was at was a long occupation site. So it's Wari Inca to Colonial. And they were wanted to know if when the Spaniards came in, they imposed their kiln technology on the locals or not. So the pottery technology does change, but we're, we're interested in whether they told them to do it differently or whether they were using the same techniques to produce the pottery that the Spaniards wanted. And we found this pot, and it was just bizarre. So it's a massive pot, which they made, but it's open top, which they didn't make. Um, and it looks like a Spanish bucket, only very big. Um, it has lug, sideways lug handles, which the Incas did not do. Um, and we found two of them exactly the same, and they're just like they're just so weird. They're just a, like they're an absolute kind of nod to one culture being imposed on by another culture and trying to figure their shit out because <laughs> they make no sense. Like they're just so that's that's probably one of my favorite pieces. I have, a, I have a few favorites, but um, I didn't actually find this one, but in Shirley Plantation on, on the James River in Virginia, in the basement of the original house in the corner, they found an assemblage of quartz crystals, eagle talons, and forest tusks. And it was, I just love the fact that it was all found together, and like, you know, the documentation on it was really good. Nobody's making that up. That is a definite occult piece in history, and it was... So cool. <laughs> so hot. Yeah. Uh, and I actually made a bunch of sexy previews in Philadelphia. We found a mammary bank that was broken. It's a bank that looks kind of like a blue. And you split it, and then you have to break it to get it open. Wow. And that was pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ask me, you know, what's the best thing you found? Luckily, you didn't word it that way because that's kind of you know, by whose judgment, I guess. Um, I can say things that I found the most interesting. Uh, one of them was a lapidary workshop that you know was probably 2,2100 BC or so. Um, at first, I didn't know what it was. I was inside the room of a mud brick building, and I come down to the floor and I start finding a lot of beads. And then I found some tools, and there was this brick that was out of place. It was sitting on the floor. I found out it was exactly on the floor. It hadn't fallen out of the wall. And this was where the person was sitting. I could tell because there were all the pieces half-made beads and the tools that were making them, and then some that were completed over here. And, and to me, I could imagine, I could see how that person worked. So they must have just left that workstation and the whole building, or why they abandoned it, I don't know. But the whole thing collapsed and preserved it. So the moments in time like that where I can really identify with how something's being made strike me <coughs> as the most interesting, I think. Maybe not unique, because people were making things all the time, but really fascinating. <laughs> I've got a handle, um, this massive strap handle from a medieval um, northern uh, Nottingham centered workshop, and it has the uh, strap handles that you have to press the interior of the pot to attach the handle after the pot's been made, and it's like 1400s or something, but you can see the fingerprints of the person who put the handle on it, yep. um, and that, that, that kind of stuff was really fun. <laughs> Or like, you know, you see the pieces of paper from the monasteries with like, you know, little kitty prints on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, at a Fairfield fair plantation, uh, there was, a, in the brickyard, there were definitely some cats. So like, some of the really nice place bricks have little kitty prints. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great tumbler called Medieval Pock. Um, medieval with the words P-O-C at the end. 
Um, and it's a Tumblr blog that does this kind of thing, that sort of chronicles strange uh, personal touches that appeared specifically in medieval times, but also um, he was the one who, who broke the cat paws on the sides of the manuscripts. And all that. Um, yeah, it's worth look, it's worth following. But yeah, and with the red. Um, so I was just wondering, you're talking a lot about like reimaginings of particularly like Middle East and uh, like East Asia, um, you know, tools and utilities and stuff like that with a, a steampunk uh, you know, twist on them. Um, is there any consideration either with work you've done or working out there about how, you know, if we were to reimagine those things, how they might have affected theoretical frameworks or like uh, sociological um, angles like Orientalism in terms of how we view those cultures? That's all I know. Yeah, that's a little bit of a <laughs> So what impact these advances would have on the way we think about things? Yeah, uh, basically, because, I mean, obviously, we know through Orientalism, but, like, you know, it's a few of these cultures never really advancing or that they're primitive and uh, whatever. Right. One of the things that I, I wonder about when I think about the Ottoman stuff is how would they absorb, even if we say, okay, the English start this kind of thing, they're all over the world, so the locals are going to start to adapt it, and I think become, I hope, uh, maybe more capable, yeah, that's not um, uh, I wonder how would they adapt it, and then would that lead to conflict with the great oppressors or whatever, would we see uh, independence movements more quickly? And would they start to use things like maybe build their own steam engines to go against them? Would they be able to ma amass that? Maybe there's a good story. Is that conflict um, rising much more quickly than independence movements before? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a difficult thought experiment because we wouldn't know how things would have changed if the technology was there, right? Like, um, I'm always fascinated by the idea of what would happen if, uh, say, uh, nomadic peoples had advanced tech. Um, which would, by its very nature, probably have to have been stolen. But still, <laughs> um, because there's there are interesting sort of cultural differences between nomadic agro and agro-pastoralists versus settled agrarian societies, um, dietary, uh, technological, material culture, uh, and treatment of women in particular. So, um, and of course, nomadic peoples, by their very nature, live leave much less of a record for us. So we just know very little about them. Uh, but I think things would be different if the technology were differently uh, dispersed. So, but that doesn't really answer your question. I don't know if it's answer your question. <laughs> Beyond my hypothesis. Yeah, a lot of the archaeologists were, although they, they did look like this often, um, they also really loved to dress in local dress. This, you know, this is Henry Haynes dressing up kind of as, as one of the Ottoman peoples anyway, and some of he them went would, native. Well, He went native. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Totally for the photo. Um, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but that's kind of fascinating too. I think they were fascinated with the cultures, but and emulating it in an extent, but they also thought they were lesser, and I don't think we want to perpetuate that in our stories, but how do we deal with, you know, how true do we be to how beastly many of these people were, and how do we want the more modern well, yeah, on both sides of the fence, I suppose. The, the most common sort of attitude that Victorians had to external cultures was that they were children. They literally thought of them as less developed. Um, so it, was, it was, wasn't necessarily like they're inferior or anything, they're, although that was part of
part of it in many cases, but a lot of it was simply like, they just don't know. You know, they need to be taught. They need to be civilized. They need to be educated. Bless their little hearts. We just need to save them. You know, uh, so there, there is that component to it. But so, then when they you know,
So, you know, it doesn't hold fluid, it'll just pour straight through. Uh, you know, is it a funnel? Some people have suggested that, but many of them are very fancy, and they're even shown in processions being given to uh, great kings or whatever, you know, so why? We often call it a ritual object, and people have come up with all sorts of things that it could be. Um, if it's a funnel, well, maybe, but what if you put wool in there and then you pour your wine in there because there's so many bits that are floating in it, when, you know, and that'll, that'll filter it. Maybe that would be a way to use it. Um, also, they had these gigantic pithoi that they would store wine in, right? And you can't move those things, but maybe you could take that thing, put it into the fluid, cover it with your hand, pull it over here, and then let go, and it would pour water in, or wine or whatever into a cup. That's clever, but ultimately we, we don't know what they are. So it's just a two-hole vessel. I hope you enjoyed listening to the archaeology panel from the Steampunk World's Fair. Once again, I'm Amber Love from Vodka O'Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com, which I'm sure you know by now, right? So you can follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter. And if you can, please go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked to show support for the show and for the website. If you have any questions about Steampunk World's Fair, um, I can try to answer them for you. But I would uh, if, if nothing else, I can at least direct you to the right people. If you have questions about attending this show or being a vendor or a performer at the show, um, I know several of the people who are on staff there. So um, they've already booked their dates for 2016. It's May 13th to the 15th, held at the same wonderful hotels, the Embassy Suites and the Radisson in Piscataway, New Jersey. And, um, you know, it's always such a great, wonderful, weird time. I love it. And um, please let me know what you think of these recordings. Uh, obviously, recording live has its own challenges. But if there's anything missed that you want me to try to cover more of in the future, just, you know, drop me a line. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.